Welcome to the 10th year, almost the 11th, of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get started this week, you have given us nearly 400 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. It'd be pretty cool if we could hit 400 pretty soon, and it would sure help new people find the program. So if you haven't given us a rating or a review yet, please pop into Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, and enjoy the show. Thanks very much. This week, Hugo McLeod. His work is on view in In Relation to Power, Politically Engaged Works from the Collection at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. That show was curated by Marshall Price and Adria Gunter and is on view through February 13th, 2022. The Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum in Connecticut is also showing Hugo McLeod from Where I Stand. It was curated by Richard Klein and is up through January 2nd. McLeod's work engages questions around labor, environmental impacts, global markets, and politics, often through materials that relate to the people, histories, and issues he addresses. He's been featured in group shows at the Studio Museum in Harlem and at the Drawing Center in New York, and his work can be found in a collection of museums such as the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, and the North Carolina Museum of Art. On the second segment, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation at the Institute of Contemporary Art, Philadelphia. But first, Hugo McLeod, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood Westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Gene Brown's trove of Dada, Surrealist, and Fluxus artworks was one of the first comprehensive collections of 20th century art at the Getty Research Institute. The new exhibition, Fluxus Means Change, Jean Brown's avant-garde archive, reveals her intuitive and innovative collecting strategies, featuring artists including Marcel Duchamp, George Machunas, John Cage, Klaus Oldenburg, Yoko Ono, and others. Now on view at the Getty Center Museum and presented in English and Spanish. We invite you to take a closer look, listen to an audio guide, and make free advance reservations at getty.edu today. And we're back. Hugo McLeod, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Let's begin in kind of a weird way. What have you made, air quotes, paintings out of over the last 10 years? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I originally started when I was interested in trying to find my language within art. I was simultaneously, you know, running a design and fabrication company, wood and metal design fabrication. And as many people know, like from other interviews and stuff like that, I, I had traveled to South Africa and spent some time in Soweto and I saw the shanty houses that were made out of a lot of discarded metals that were mostly rusted, but rusted in different colors. And at the time I was doing a lot of patina work on the, the design projects that I was doing on copper, bronze and brass. And I had studied 
patination. And so I was very familiar with that. And after seeing the shanty houses, it immediately clicked because in the design world and in the fabrication world, you have a lot of scrap odds and ends of the pieces of metal. And it immediately clicked on using the discarded pieces of bronze and brass that I had and creating my canvas with that and then using patination to, in a sense, paint on the material. So I was using the chemicals and the roofing torches and the grinders, sanders, and other various materials to create these metal paintings. And this was probably back in 2003, actually, is when I first started doing the metal paintings. And then from there, you know, in 2009 or 2008, I decided that I needed to move to New York because this is pre the social media boom and knowing that if I wanted to try to be discovered or however you want to put it, make it within our world, I needed to kind of be where the scene was. And that was New York City. So I moved there in 2009. And at that time, I was still doing the metalwork. That was kind of like what I started with. But from there, and doing a bunch of work with that, I was also interested in other materials. So it went into, and as well, not kind of drawing the attention from whoever I had contacts with studio visits and stuff with the original metal works that I was doing. So I had moved into one of the interesting materials that I would love to actually go back because I feel is very promising now that I look back at it. I was doing some other design work, this certain style of wire mesh. I created like a system of weaving it and actually pushing paint from behind. So if you imagine like this squared with eighth inch holes wire mesh instead of painting on the surface of it i was doing patination on the front and then through the holes i was actually pressing paint through the squares i was doing stuff with bronze the shavings when you're cutting bronze in a fabrication shop and you have the little metal shavings almost like sand in a sense from the bronze i was doing these paintings with just the metal shavings and I did a series of those. And I was doing these various different materials. And then I had stumbled upon the tar paper. Which is a roofing material. And from there, that pretty quickly turned into the stamp paintings. And that's when I first started working with Luce Gallery in Italy. And the stamp paintings was the first series of work that kind of took off. And then from there, you've gone on to make work out of plastic. And we'll talk about a lot of this as we go along. Before we do, and before we unpack all that a bit, what really has struck me throughout your career is that you have taken everything you just described and used it in a format that is more or less two-dimensional and wall-mounted. So using all of the traditional display modes of oil on panel and oil on canvas, only with different materials. All a long way of asking, why is that traditional two-dimensional painting format and mode of presentation important to you? Why is that what you've wanted to do? Well, at the time, I, you know, when I, when I came into the art world, I was doing three-dimensional. Whole, whole environments, yeah. Right, I was doing whole environments, I was doing furniture pieces. And to be honest, in that time, in 2000, 2003, my perception, and I feel that it was correct, but there was not this crossover that there is now where artists are kind of free to do anything. 
And, you know, it's very much if you're a painter, that's what you're doing. If you're a sculptor, that's what you're doing. And I wanted to not confuse the audience of what I was doing or to, in a sense, make the artwork look decorative. You know, it's like it, was, it would have been very easy, to, easy for me to, like, make decorative art, you know, and to kind of have this idea. Because, you know, you go into a lot of design stores and the design districts and there's art in there, you know, and they're selling art with the furniture. I kind of wanted to make this very clean distinction that I'm an artist, you know, and that, yes, I do furniture and yes, I do this other things, but I'm also an artist. And so my focus was solely on if I'm making these wall pieces and these are the artists that I'm also inspired by, then what would I make? And I use these materials because these are the materials that were common to me and things that I understood you know, at the same time, because I didn't go to art school, you know, I had tried when I was in the design world. And I was like, you know, oh, I want to learn and go into like more of fine art. I actually enrolled at CCA in San Francisco and rolled at CCA. And, and I sent a whole portfolio of work that I was actually completed, you know, things that like functional furniture and sculptural things that I was selling, you know, already in a commercial sense. And I went and had my meeting with whoever my counselor was at the time. And she basically told me like, you know, it seems like you're a little like, it was weird because she was like, you know, it seems like you're a little distracted. And I think like you should go to junior college for two semesters and then re-enroll, you know, or reapply. And at that point in time, I think it was like this, this sign for me of like, no, this is, this is not where you're supposed to be. You need to just do it on your own. And that was kind of like my attempt of trying to go the formal route. Again, like the two, two-dimensional idea of painting has just kind of been because I had already understood the three-dimensional. But now, you know, where I am currently is I am getting back into the three-dimensional space. I'm actually presently in the midst of designing and setting up bronze foundry out here because I have back history of doing bronze casting and bronze work. I'm also obviously a, I'm a metal fabricator, a welder, and understand all of that. So I'm setting those things up, which will as well have a full ceramic studio. If you look at some of the old shows, I did this show called... I want to say timeline. I did this show in timeline called timeline in Italy. And there was a lot of paintings in it, but there was actually a lot of sculptural freestanding and wall mounted sculptural elements in it. There's bronze pieces in there and there's other sculptural works that I did with a tar paper. I think that a lot of artists do work this way, but I think a lot don't. But for me, I'm trying to be very strategic with how I'm approaching my art path. And I finally have also come to a place of fully understanding that this is a lifelong journey, not just, you know, like a quick, quick turnaround. So, you know, I have time to set these things up and, and then get them out there, you know, develop them and get them out there. But my idea is, is, is fully within two dimensional and three dimensional. I think sometimes the discourse around your work ends up rather too much around the materials and not around what you're doing with imagery. So let's pivot a little bit to what you're showing in the work, maybe starting with the plastic merchandise bags work. They're kind of two, at least for me, two kind of major subjects you're addressing. One is 
the relationship between people and the environment, particularly as they move through it. And the other is the relationship between labor and landscape. What about those two relationships attracted and motivated your interest? You know, I always really want to always be kind of be straightforward and honest within my approach to art and like what I am truly thinking within every body of work. The figuration within this plastic work, the reason, because it happened, it happened kind of an early stage before I really figured out the direction of where I wanted to take it. But the figuration actually happened out of frustration. And it happened out of frustration from all of my past bodies of work. Which I should jump in and mention were Which abstract. is all abstraction. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, all of those bodies of work came from visual things that I had seen outside in the world. And a lot of things that I have seen from a space of labor of how people do things around the world in my travels, whether it was India, Africa, Latin America, different places that I had, the Caribbean, different places that I had seen people do a process with materials. And then in my mind, abstracting from it, because the metalwork started again with the shanty houses in Soweto. And what was interesting about that is that I was there with a group of my friends that were architects from Cornell. And we were in Soweto and the common person would look at these shanties and just look at them as what they are, you know, impoverished people squatting on a piece of land that build a shelter for themselves out of whatever material they, they find. What was interesting about the trip and the time that we spent out there and then the project that then came forth after that was that even in these communities, there's a contractor. There's a person that actually builds these things that they pay to build these shanty houses. And there's a way that they build them. There's a thought behind it. And the idea that, you know, that these are still places that people dwell. So there was this idea that of the way that people look at them and what they perceive from, from that. Because when I was in South Africa, I was spending a lot of time well, I was actually being housed by very affluent people and people that actually had great means. At the same time, most of my time was spent kind of in these ghettos and in these kind of squatter places because of the project that we were doing. So my thought process with everybody of work is trying to kind of change the conversation around something that kind of has a negative outlook or a negative visual towards it or conversation towards it. So here are these, these shanty houses. And so when people see that, they automatically associate it with X, Y, and Z. So then at the same time, my thought was, well, if I can create something using the same materials and create something that was aesthetically pleasing to the eye, so all my work as well does deal with beauty or interest. But it was the idea that if I can, if I can make you find something attractive and then you understand the meaning behind it, now when you see this out in public or out somewhere else, you're going to look at it differently, hopefully, or you're going to have a different conversation or outlook on it. And so every body of my work kind of came from that, from this idea of finding beauty in the things that are overlooked or finding perfection within the imperfections. And that's then as well how the stamp paintings came about. You know, I found this material in New York. It was a common material that's on almost all of the roofs in New York, this tar paper then coated with the aluminum coating paint, the reflective aluminum coating paint. And I 
randomly came across a roll of this tar paper on top of my day randomly. And then I saw how my shoes actually made impressions in this material. So I brought it down. I was playing with the material in the studio. There was also a bucket of the aluminum paint there. So I used the paint also on it. And I saw how it made these impressions. And somehow from there, it made me go into the idea of creating patterns of repetition, the block patterns. Can I interrupt for just a quick second? You mentioned that seeing footprints in the paper caught your attention. Is that because it was evidence that labor had been there and done work to use that material on a roof? It was kind of the idea of something leaving a mark leaving like a sense of history, like a sense of time. And it was also on this freshly painted. So like it kind of really stood out. So there's something interesting, I guess, about that that initially caught my eye. And I somehow ended up on Indian block printing. And the, the idea with that, which really caught my attention, and this was kind of my thought process behind the initial making of the of the blocks was, the process that they do in India is that they're, they're carving these patterns out by hand. And then there's this repetition act of putting the block in the ink and then putting it on the fabric, hitting it with your hands and doing that over and over and you're lining it up. So one block, the pattern creates a link and it's one after another. What was interesting about it to me is that people look at these hand printed textiles and they would have this thought process of oh this is beautiful this is perfect in the sense of even though that the lines aren't perfectly matching up they go within the fabric here and there but at the same time their reaction is that it's perfect because those imperfections register in their head as still something of beauty at the same time now within technology when a machine messes up on making textiles, you recognize it and it looks as something that you discard and something that you don't want. So there was something that was like really interesting about that in a sense of process of material. So that became, became like the idea behind the process. I'm going to carve these wood blocks out and then I'm going to do this repetition on this material and stamp into these things. Then I asked myself, okay, well, I need to find my own patterns. And in that time, I knew I went to actually Strand Bookstore in New York City, and I bought some ornamental books, ornamental design. And I bought these books, and I'm looking through them, and I'm getting excited. And I'm like, look at this, this, this pattern from Japan. Look at this pattern from the Middle East. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, but if I'm asked about why I use this Middle Eastern pattern, what am I, what relationship do I have with it? None. And so it was very important for me as an artist to have an idea behind the work that I'm creating, because I knew in that time of my life, I already knew how to make things attractive, but I didn't want to be looked at as an artist that just made attractive things, even though this is actually what happened and why I actually implemented in the person into my body of work with the plastic work. I had asked myself, okay, well, how am I going to source patterns? And I run a lot. And in that time I lived in Bushwick and I had always remembered seeing discarded furniture in front of the projects and, in, in like Marcy projects where I would run from Bushwick to Best Eye. 
and I would see discarded furniture in my neighborhood in Bushwick, which was a really kind of just industrial abandoned kind of neighborhood slash ghetto where the studios were. And you would see furniture just there for months. It wasn't picked up by the city or the trash men. You'd see a mattress or a couch and it was just there. And I saw these textiles on the furniture. So I started documenting the textiles on the furniture and those became the patterns that I would use on the blocks. So then from there, it was like, okay, this is a discarded piece of furniture that nobody wants. That's just overlooked. We walk by it every day. It's not picked up by the city, nothing. It's just there. And we're forced to kind of, in a sense, you know, a lot of times this is the way I think about artists. They move into these places and you become numb about your environment, no matter how bad it is. There's no trees, it's garbage, it's dirty. And it's just, you just kind of accept it as like, that's what it is. You no longer even pay attention to it. So then it was, okay, well, what am I going to paint underneath before I stamp these paintings? And at that time as well, not going to kind of like painting school and art school, I didn't really understand color theory, though I knew what I liked because all the work that I did within the design world was, was very much earth tones and patinas is very much earth tones. But, you know, I would spend a lot of time at bookstores and then looking at fashion magazines, I would see how these designers use these really beautiful textiles that were made, you know, colors and stuff like that. And I would also see kind of how they were highlighted in these magazines, these, these couture brands that were, you know, you would look at them and be like, this is valuable, like this is worth money. And that's how they were marketed, like this is valuable. And then at the same time, I would look at this furniture, this is not valuable. These things are, there's no value in these things. So it was this idea of, I would take these colors and these patterns from these books, document them, and that's what I would actually paint underneath the stamp paintings. I would paint replicas of these textiles from these dresses, these couture dresses. And then I would stamp over it with these patterns of these textiles that I documented from this discarded furniture from these neighborhoods. Taking something that is overlooked, that is not desired, that nobody would want in their house, and then stamping those onto something that everybody puts value upon. That then those same people that don't value the discarded furniture now want this object in their house. So it was always this kind of question of, you know, labor comes into it in a sense of like all the bodies of work. There's a, there's a physical labor that goes into making these things, using these random materials to create this art, a physical labor that is also very repetition oriented. Like if you're stamping a painting, it could be 200 stamps. Well, it's very physical hitting these things with the hammer, using the torch to warm up the material, all of this stuff over and over and over again. And I looked at that over and over again in a sense of also how all around the world, there's people that work jobs for 10, 20, 30, 40 years doing the same thing over and over and over again. Like that's all they do, you know, working in fabrication shops over and over again. So those are kind of like all the different stories that I would put together in my head to then create these bodies of work. But because when I came out in the art world, it was this moment of process-driven work, young artists, abstraction, and also being an artist that, you know, the value of my paintings were low. So you had all of these people that just wanted your work. And this time, this boom of like, I don't even care what you have. You have, you know, I remember being actually installing a show at Vladimir's 
and it was during Armory Week. I was doing a, that was the show that I did. It's called Put in Place at Vladimir Roasting when he had that project space. And this is before I started working with Sean. But I did a show there and I was in the side room just touching up something that was being installed. And I remember an art advisor coming in there and talking to Vladimir. And I verbatim literally heard her say, like, my client doesn't care what he has, just whatever. If there's anything available, we'll take it. And that, you know, like, this is how it was. I will never understand that mindset. I know it exists. I will never understand That's how it was. It is how it is now. It just, and it's weird. As an artist, even though, like, yes, you're coming from a place of not making any money and then people want your stuff. And yes, you want to make money. You don't want to be running from your landlords anymore. But at the same time, from the idea of creation, it doesn't set well. And it's weird. And it's like, so for me, it was very important that there was a conversation around my work. At the same time, nobody cared. <laughs> and to be honest, the galleries didn't really care. The, the, the art advisors didn't really care. The collectors didn't really even care. It was all the idea of value, like, I want this because this is in demand. There's not that much. When can I get one? Yeah, I was just going to I was just going to reinforce that point, which is that the commercial art world, whether it's 19th century American painting or 21st century stuff, is about commodification to whatever extent it can. The market is not interested in the ideas or ideologies within what to them are commodities and luxury good objects. And... To a substantial extent, the artists who are interesting are artists who insist upon finding ways to foreground their ideas and interests in the face of a commercial whirlwind. And so I think you're describing that exactly as it exists. Money, for me, allows me to continually explore. That's the idea around money for me. And that's why you see me as an artist continually exploring new materials and new ideas. So I, I definitely do use it as a tool. For me, it's just been a very strategic. And that's the reason why, you know, because as well, I didn't come from the academic background. So I didn't have these connections and these people in my circle already. And I didn't know how to actually do that with the other materials. So when this plastic material came about, I was actually making these, I don't know if you remember the original plastic, the first plastic works were these stacks, oval, but kind of like weird shape stacks. So those stacks originated, and this is where the frustration lies. I was still trying to make these abstracted references to what I was actually interested in. This is how actually, the, how old the plastic work actually is. When I was in India in 2013 doing the block print research, that is actually when I came across these polyethylene woven plastic sacks. And I first saw them on a night, the first night I got there because I couldn't sleep in Mumbai. And this was in kind of like, I don't know if you know Mumbai, but it's, it's on that water line. So this is in a more affluent area. And I saw a construction site or they were working on a house. But there was this stack, and this is actually on my Facebook, how old it is, all these images. <laughs> so there's this, this garage or like this lot, parking lot, and there was probably 150, 200 of these polyethylene woven sacks, yellow, white, orange, and also all sun kind of faded. 
filled with some type of construction material, sand or something like that. And it was this, there, there was so many of them, but stacked like a wall. So my eye, and this is how I look at every material that I come across, my eye automatically abstracted that idea into literally taking that and putting it on a wall and seeing it as a painting. Because you had these colors kind of like running through the piece, the oranges, yellows, greens, all in predominantly white, but you had these colors kind of going through. I immediately asked my host, where can I get these plastic bags? These were like, why would you want those plastic bags? Because those plastic bags, once they go from the construction site, the other people that use those plastic bags are the people in the slums. And they use these plastic bags to either have for trash in their own house and they, they put them outside of their house with refuge from their house. Or they also use these plastic bags for recycling when they're collecting materials, whatever it is, because they're very, very durable. So the people that I'm with that are very affluent art collectors and people like that, their association with these plastic bags is of, from these slums and these people that use these plastic bags. But their colors were beautiful. So my eye was like, I want to get some of these plastic bags. Talking to them, they finally like helped me out and I was into Harvey. And that's where I bought, I don't know, 20 or 30 originally of these plastic woven sacks. And that is actually the birth of the plastic work. So when I brought those back to New York, my idea was I want to do something with these plastic bags, but I don't want to use another material to attach them. So I want to make these canvases with these bags, cut them up and kind of pattern them out. But I don't want to use glue, staples, nails. I want to somehow combine these materials together. That then kind of made me go down this process of trying to figure out a way to kind of melt them. I thought it was plastic. Okay, plastic melts. How can I melt them together? But it's so thin, it's very tricky. And that, that made me go through YouTube again, which then brought me across arts and crafts people that use clothes irons to like and wax paper to melt materials together. So this is back in 2013. From there, I had only brought so many of those woven plastic sacks back. And that is where like, okay, they don't really use these bags in America. But in my thought process, it was like, but they use these sacks everywhere else in the world. So I had friends from Africa send me a couple of those bags. I had fr I actually have some bags from, from South America, from Spain, and even a few from Mexico. So this is like a year or so like that. And I was doing this series that nobody's actually seen. I, I have like one collector that bought one. I actually still have most of them. So this is the original plastic, but I still didn't have access to a huge amount of these. And so that then was like, okay, well, this plastic idea is interesting of what it is. I remember buying like a pack of gum. And I remember the guy that I bought the pack of gum from put the pack of gum in this huge plastic bag. This is before plastic was banned. And, and from there, I'm just thinking like how ridiculous that is. You know what I mean? Like the use of like, here's a plastic bag. And it was a beautiful green, like teal green color. One of the colors that I used in a lot of my paintings. But he put this pack of gum in the bag and I'm like, you know, like that was ridiculous. On that way home, I started seeing so much of the plastic trash all over the streets. Everywhere you walk, a plastic bag here, one flying in the wind all over the place. So then I was like, whoa, I wonder what happened if I try this process with grocery bags. The process worked. The idea, the sense of fusing the materials together worked. 
from there, my mind exploded. And I started making, of course, I never start small. I made this huge black plastic painting in my, uh, in my studio. And when I mean like not huge, but it was like seven feet by seven feet. So I had made this. I was excited. I actually even had Lauren come over from the gallery and look at it. We were talking about it. But after like a week, the piece started to kind of shrink. And so the material started to kind of wrinkle in a sense. And over the next three or four years, I kept that. And I kept that in my living room <laughs> right next to my dining table. And so I would always look at it in this, in this space of irritation but I, because I left it there because I was like, this idea is promising, but I got to figure out the technical aspect of it so that it doesn't, because obviously somebody can't buy it. And then two weeks later, it's shrunken down and like totally different. So I kept it there for years. And that's when like, I started doing the metal paintings and other stuff like that, kept it there for years until I finally figured it out. When I figured out the process, I then was actually more mature. And I started on a very small, like the size of the flowers that I'm doing now, 20 by 17. And the process worked. So if you remember those very first plastic works, I think I showed some of them at Armory. Uh, I don't remember what year. I, I did those stacked plastic, those small little stacked repetition of like stacks. Those stacks represent the polyethylene woven sacks filled with trash at the waste sites and the people that work at the recycling sites where they fill all these, whether one's holding plastic bottles, another one's holding caps or whatever it is, lighters, whatever it is, but they're stacked. And there's like these mountains of these woven polyethylene woven sacks filled with discard. So my idea was to kind of abstract from that. And that's why I started to make these kind of like these pieces and they were like pink because I was trying to use a color that was also like weird and also kind of pleasant to look at. So I was making those those stack pieces and I was making some for this is where the figure came in. I was building my studios in Mexico while the studios were being built. I rented a small little storefront. And when I mean small, it was probably uh, 150, 200 square feet, real small. But it was across the street from a place here in Tulum that was at one day, it was just an empty piece of land. The next day, thousands of people came in and invaded the land and set up tents. And so what it was is that a politician at that time or something like that basically had these people come in from a different state of Mexico, come in here and say, we'll give you this land for votes and stuff like that. And they call this place an invasion. There's three of them here in Tulum. They're still there. And so what I started to see was this kind of like this idea that, you know, they first came in, there's a tent. The next day they're, they're building a, a wall out of plywood. The next day somebody sets up a, a small table and they're selling fruit on there. And starting to kind of see this like city develop. And one of the tables was selling fruit. And so a truck came by and he was basically the whole back of the truck was filled with bananas. And they're pulling off bananas from the back of this truck. And so you kind of started to see like, in a sense, the same thing that I saw in South Africa and these other places or things that I'm attracted to but the willingness of people and how they kind of like the resilience of them and everything, you know, and how just over time things are developed. And now this place is still 
an invasion, but a lot of the places are full block, concrete block walls and, you know, roofs and everything over the last couple of years. Well, I had was making a couple of the sack pieces for Zona Marco for one of the galleries. And the, the idea with the plastic work is, that, or the problem with the plastic work is that there's no forgiveness. And so if you mess up, it's, you have to pretty, if you mess up to the point where like, oh, I can't resolve this, there's no covering up, you have to start over. Because it doesn't, like you could put 10 layers of plastic on, you're still gonna see what's underneath. So I had messed up on one of these stack pieces. And then I was just like kind of frustrated. And I'm also like thinking about like, you know, people aren't like the galleries, everybody, no one's really caring. And like, this is like representation of like <laughs> scrap yards and, and wastelands and everything like that. And I'm trying to have this conversation again because I wanted to take the plastic to a place where I could actually use it, travel, collect plastic from these environments, these places, and make these pieces that kind of represented this idea, as well as being able to have these backstories of these communities and these people. And that was the original idea with the plastic. Well, I put three layers of white plastic over that messed up piece, and I had taken a photo of previously of the guy with the bananas off the truck. But the photo of the bananas is that almost everything of his body was covered besides like you could just see his legs and his feet. And so I had this really crappy projector. I'm talking like the cheapest projector you could buy like thing. You can't use it in any type of daylight. And anyways, I think I put plastic over the windows and I was like, ah, you know, I think this will be interesting. And I, I put it, I formatted it on the computer and I was like, I should just go for it. Like, who cares? This piece is messed up anyways. And I had made that first banana piece and it was interesting. It was like, it was also the first time I did anything that was figurative, you know, at the same time, it was kind of abstracted because most of the guy was covered in the bananas. And I thought it was interesting enough to kind of show to, I showed it to Velmetter and she liked it and she went for it. I put that piece in Zona Marco and from there, that's how the figuration kind of went and kind of went that has gone down this story of all these things and people that I've seen on my travels. And even if you look at my Facebook now, which I'm never on Facebook when I, but when I went back, I have these pictures from the Harvey of these guys pulling these carts with filled with boxes, or, you know, I have these images. And so it's like, it was very interesting for me to kind of see like, this has been something that I've been interested in and attracted to for all of these years. And now it's actually coming out. And so for me, the plastic work and the figuration, and hopefully after this COVID thing passes and we can start really traveling was I want to use the plastic as a medium and a tool to kind of really tell stories. And that is to me really interesting where somebody from another place can see something and now they're automatically attached to this, this piece or the references of these images of these labors. You know, I get a lot of DMs on Instagram or something like that from different people. I did that one of the gasoline smugglers, the ones that like kind of like make their own gasoline in, in different parts of Africa. Is this the one with the young man on a motorbike? I think it's up at the Aldrich now. Motorbike was surrounded by six, seven, eight plastic jugs of, yeah, what you're describing, homemade gas. Right. So I get, I get DMs of people basically like not just thanking me, but also saying like either thank you because this reminds me of home 
or, you know, I get people saying like, thank you for like giving light and conversation to these people that are kind of overlooked. And like, for me, like, that's really what it is about. It's kind of the labor of these people and these things that these people do, which I don't want to do with that stuff either. But it's also just interesting to see these things of how things are done, but also putting light and kind of respect to these situations that, of how, to me, how people are willing to make things happen. Yeah, let me jump into that a little bit. The, a lot of these works that are made of plastic feature people of the global majority, people of color, doing work, moving goods like bananas in push-pull from, from 2019 at the Nasher. Stonebreakers in another work that's at the Aldridge. People doing doing work. And when I think about labor in the 19th century American tradition, kind of America's founding art history, kind of from the 1840s through at least the American centennial, the land and labor relationship that most interested American painters back then, by far, was white farmers working in an agricultural space an engagement with and indeed a pictorial extension of free labor ideology, which even when it was anti-slavery, as it often was in the North, it was wholly disinterested in black people and was always about white opportunity, extending white opportunity and creating new opportunity for only whites. Is your work existing as a, a place where black labor and the expression of and growth of black opportunity has a place to grow within American art that it, it really hasn't until, until more recently. I use the black or the brown skin tone one. I think that in some of these pieces and some of these things, or maybe just in, in the thought of my head, I think there's, there's some type of personal connection in the sense of the work of how I even see myself because as well, like all these bodies of work are so physical. My background has also been, you know, before I even did this was always kind of labor. So I think there's a, there's a personal kind of like identity when I see people doing things that kind of like, I understand it. I think there's also the place that I've traveled to a lot of these environments you know, so it's like these are the places that I've traveled to and these are the environments that I've seen firsthand. It's not so much from uh, our historical space of like, I want to see the black figure represented for this. That's not where it is right now. My background is I grew up, my, my father was African-American. He was from from Houston, Texas. And, you know, in the sense of really understanding the history of where my family came from. I can't tell you that because it's, you know, in the sense of him, I know that his grandmother, his great grandmother was a slave, but like, as far as before that, I can't tell you where my family is really from on my father's side. However, on my grandfather's side, on my mother's side, my grandfather came from Austria, from Vienna, Austria. And he came after he was actually in a concentration camp. And he got released and came directly to, to America. So my mother is first generation Austrian. So I kind of, you know, I grew up in this dual space where my father was was very dark and, and black and, and my father was a sculptor and a, and, and a worker. My grandfather was also a very hard worker who actually 
he, you know, now that I, I understand a lot of this now where I get this from, but he actually started a scrap metal yard in San Francisco called Mars Metal. It was a big scrap metal yard, especially post-war where like they even scrapped, you know, he had a picture of these five sea bombers that they bought and they scrapped, they scrapped the planes, but I have, I have a picture of them flying. And I have pictures of the scrapyard and all the men that worked in the scrapyard. And a lot of them were actually or black people in, in San Francisco. And then he you know, went from there and actually sold that business and started a metal refinery where like they, they refine platinum, gold and silver for jewelers and everything like that. So I grew up around the furnaces and the crucibles and melting down the metal and turning it into gold bars and, and gold buoyant and all of that. So for me... I'm not, as a black artist, I'm not coming from a space of like, this is my conversation. I'm coming from a space of like more of a humanitarian worldview of the places that I've gone to and traveled. And now even much more right now is coming from, I've just kind of have dove deep into a lot of current world events, you know, especially since COVID happened, really kind of looking into what's happening in the Middle East, looking into what's happening in so many parts of Africa with the migrants and the migration, looking into parts of problems in Southeast Asia, even like the piece that I did at Unlimited, where it was in a lot of different countries and different worlds, but like we have these oxygen shortages and these people waiting in lines for oxygen for COVID and in the black markets of those situations. So like my my thought process, especially within this body of work and also starting kind of this new thing, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of in the tumble dry of a, of a, of, of a washing machine in the back of my head. And I don't say this to the galleries because it freezes them out <laughs> in the back of my head. It's like, there's, there's video, there's photography, there's, there's different things. There could be sculpture. There could be different things because it's really based upon the experience that I have outside of the studio. So that's kind of like, you know, where it is. And obviously, you know, it's gone down these different things, these different avenues. And the figuration has become prominent in this moment in time. But in the back of my head, I'm, I'm trying to as well, like, blend back into a space of abstraction, blend back into like these different ideas and stuff like that, because I also don't want to be pigeonholed, you know? Well, I, th- I think in works like The Day Before Friday the 12th from 2020, which is a work about migrants, there are passages in works like that, whether it's in the water, in the foreground, or in the sky, in the background, that recalls abstractions from your patinaed pieces of a decade earlier. Well, that piece is an interesting piece because most people missed it. I don't know if you know that that's like actually a reference to Peter Doig. So that's that's the real like I saw that Peter Doig painting of the boat and I was already interested in the migrant situation. And that Peter Doig piece was like a reference to Nightmare on Elm Street. And so it was like this idea like this is a fictional nightmare and this is a real nightmare. And that's kind of like I referenced that painting. But yes, in those boat pieces, you know, and this is also something within the material of actually why I'm also thankful for the figuration. And this is from a studio material practice is that the figuration, because my head already sees abstraction within everything, but the figuration made me stay within lines. If, if you understand that, it made me have to figure out how to 
create something that was real. How to, how to compose. How to compose it, exactly, with this new material. With this material that doesn't flow the way that you want it to. It's weird. It does different things. Makes it, makes it really good for water and sky. <laughs> right. Water, sky. But like when you're trying to like render skin, like how do you do that? When you're trying to like render shadows, like how do you do that? Or, or dirt, like my biggest challenge and I'm getting, I'm trying to continually figure that out is like trees and brush. You know, it's very, it's very difficult. So the figuration within a technical aspect is a tool so that when I finally really dive back into abstraction, and I want to get something out, I know exactly how to create those layers because it's about layers and, and what color is over what, and that doesn't look good. You know, so it's all of that. When you started working with plastic, plastic bags and so on, as we've been talking about, you collected a lot of the material yourself. And in other interviews, you've talked about how this goes back to a 2012 trip to Mumbai with a friend and colleague of yours. And as I understand it, you have often collected other materials. So it's not like you went out and, I mean, maybe eventually you did, but initially, as you were talking about, you found tar paper in C2 and, and, and found that interesting. Was that all curiosity and happenstance or is some of it, some of going and looking, a mindful conceptual engagement with, say, Mark Bradford's practice or the assemblage of George Herms or, or Noah Purifoy or Melvin Edwards or Ronald Lockett? Mark Bradford was, he was an influence for me way back before I was even in the art world. And now I forget the name of the gallery, but I went to his show in San Francisco on Market Street. And so I've always like looked at his work. And then I looked at like Leonardo Drew. And, and this is all before like I knew like anything, you know, and these were also black artists, you know. So like, I think at that time it was important for me to find abstract artists because that's really what I was interested in that were people of color. I came across Art Pavera movement and these different artists that were using various materials like Giannis Cornelius and Burry and Toppies and these different artists that were doing these different things that I could look at their work and then and really kind of in a sense break their work down in a way because I understood the materials, I understood tools, I understood, you know, those things that were but I, I had no understanding of paint. Ah, so I, let, me, let me jump in a real quick second. In, you know, some of your aluminum foil and aluminum coating with, with oil paint works, there is a, a real sense of Burry, a real sense of those Italian artists and their experimentation with, you know, also then unusual materials. So I, I, I absolutely see relationship there. That makes a lot of sense. There was a lot of influence on those things because that's, or I guess those are the, the few artists that I actually referenced. And I've always been the type of person that if I feel confident about what, an idea or something that I'm doing, I'm going to do it. Now you can start to see that within these different bodies of work that I've done. All the galleries would have still had me if they didn't just trust me, but they would have had me still stamping paintings right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the idea of switching materials all the way was like, no, what are you doing? Shifts and changes make commerce nervous. Very nervous. I didn't care. I've never cared. I understand that the shift needs to be calculated and it also needs to be done correctly. And before you put that shift out there, it needs to be refined. But 
when I came into the art world, I knew very little. But when not getting accepted into CCA, I also came to a place where I was like, if I inundate myself and just flush myself with what everybody else is doing, I'm not going to have my own voice and identity because I also know that I'm a person that is because I can break stuff down of how to do something. If I only studied Mark Bradford, I might be making paintings with paper. If I studied these other artists, I might be used trying to copy and do what they've done in my own way. But at the same time, fully referencing these people because that's what I'm taking in. So for me, it was very important that I like actually did not consume myself with what everybody else was doing until I came to a place of like feeling somewhat confident in what I'm actually trying to create. So, you know, I think that the influence of other artists is needed. I think it challenges you. I think understanding, and this is the other way that I work. When I start doing flowers, I will look and see what other people have done. Let me, let me jump in real quick on, on flower paintings. Cause that's how I wanted to, to begin to wrap up your flower paintings are sort of still lifes on, on white backgrounds. They're smaller than the works we've been talking about. The relationship to Manet is, is kind of present, although, you know, Manet wasn't painting on white backgrounds, of course. So there's an obvious point of art historical engagement there, as well as the personal engagement you mentioned a moment ago. What about bringing those together worked for you, especially because it's so much outside so much of what else you've made in the last 15 years? Actually, at my very first show called Young Curators, I think it was called Young Curators. It was the very first group show that I was in. Larry Osei curated it, that he put me in in New York City. It's at a gallery that no longer exists. But I did a show there and there was actually four flower paintings on tar that I had done. And I was doing actually a series of the flowers when I first started doing the tar paintings before actually I was even doing the stamps on the tar. But I think I'm somewhat of a bit of an extremist in the way that I move in something that I'm confident in, in doing. And I kind of do that. So there's also this idea, and I don't really know if I believe in it, but I think it's something that you strive to be, that everybody talks about striving to be, but this idea of balance. The plastic work right now, if you look at it, it's very colorful. I think it has some type of relation to the environment, the new environment that I'm in, the amount of greenery and life, plant life that I'm around, and as well the nature of the material. I do think that it's a reflection of my environment. The last body of work that I really created in New York City was the metal paintings. And that's when I was still in Bushwick, which are very, which are very dark and very aggressive and very, you know, it's a material that is very forgiving that I can pound and grind. You know, I was in a very industrial part of the, of Bushwick, you know, across from me was a, a box truck repair shop. And next to me was kitchen fabrication, a Chinese kitchen fabrication where they made you know, like the metal wok stoves and, you know, a fabricating shop actually is where I actually did the metal forming of those paintings. And if you look at that body of work, it's very dark. A lot of them were black or the patina work. And that was when I kind of reapproached the metal paintings from way back in 2000, when I first started them in 2003. It's the first time that I actually put them out there and that they were received. And you look at these different bodies of work 
and, and kind of relate them to the environments that I'm in, they are kind of a reflection of that. Yeah, and I should and I should note that the flower paintings are super bright. It's not just the white background, as as I perhaps dumbly described them. The flowers are very super orange, super yellow. The leaves are super green. They burst. I think that it's a reflection of where I'm at. I also think that the real way that the actually the the little daily studies that I came about was also kind of just something that I did for myself to kind of cope with the beginning of COVID and as well, the feeling that I was taking in, you know, I had, this is for me, I was able to deal with COVID throughout the whole thing in a very blessed way. At the same time in my, what would it be? Micro world in my, in my world of the things that kind of happened outside of any health stuff, but like the things that happened was it was also for me career wise. I had just moved to Mexico. I was just in a new mental space one because I was no longer bound down by these crazy expenses of New York City so I was free from that I had created a new very nice studio space in Mexico I was finally at that place where I was feeling like I was coming out of that emerging artist space you know like kind of finally coming into a space of maturity within my practice because it was also the first time that I could look down the timeline and be like, okay, my next 18 months are booked out and this is what I'm doing show-wise. This is what I'm doing project-wise. Boom, everything has stopped. All the shows are on hold, you know, everything. And so it wasn't about money. It was about the fact of like, what am I now doing with my time? What am I doing? All this, you know, and the flowers to come in the studio and to work on a huge body of work of these big paintings, I'm sure... The majority of people had this feeling in the beginning of this pandemic. You had March, which everybody was like, you know, you had you had the president saying, we we 14 days to slow the curve. I love that saying, you know, it was 14 days to slow the curve. So everybody's thinking they just got a two week break, <laughs> you know, as you, we all know, once those 14 days pass and you realize, no, this is like thing. And then the gallery is saying they're shutting down and then this and that. You're like, why am I going to go into the studio and work on a piece that's going to take me a month to do? What is the point? It was the first time you really felt like, I don't think there's any reason to do anything. So the flower paintings was a way for me to kind of kind of create this visual documentation and journal and also do something that I could go into the studio and do and finish within a, you know, a half a day or three or four hours. So I knew that I could discipline myself for that small amount of time and not become overwhelmed with the Corona task force or some new crazy situation that's happening that now this place is shut down and now you can't do this. And, you know, thinking about your family and just like, you know, like everything that was happening. So it was like these flowers was like this moment of lightness and the idea of doing these small pieces and then signing them in the front and documenting them by putting the actual day on there. Yeah. So the date is just below your signature on the front of the picture. Just below the signature, because it was also this moment in time, no matter who you are, what status you are, you know what you were doing on that in that moment. That I mean, maybe not that exact day, but you knew like March. <laughs> 30th 
2020, this is what was happening. But I also think that it's something that I've been trying to find an excuse or a reason to explore. So these daily little flowers, these very kind of simple, it's, they're not elaborate because it's not about a matter of like not wanting to put all my energy into it, but I don't want them to even give that feeling. Neat, neat. Can't wait. Hugo McLeod, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has reopened to the public with a new exhibition in relation to power, politically engaged works from the collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, The Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago. On view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Aaron Cristobal joins me to discuss the retrospective Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. It's at the Institute of Contemporary Art Philadelphia through December 30th. Cristobal co-curated the exhibition with the ICA Philadelphia's Meg Only. Jenkins is an influential video and performance artist whose work has examined how cultural iconography and history have informed representation. The exhibition will travel to the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, that's Cristobal's home institution, next year. The exhibition catalog was published by the two museums. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about 40 bucks. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. And as an added bonus, the two museums will also republish Jenkins's memoir, Doggerel Life, Stories of a Los Angeles Griot. Aaron Cristobal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. The beginning of your address of Ulysses Jenkins's work cites him in, in two contexts, as having grown up in civil rights era Los Angeles and as having grown up in a particularly specific geography within civil rights era Los Angeles. And so that geography is, you know, I'm not sure where the city boundaries are and all that, but it's basically between Culver City and Crenshaw, an intersection at which the Hollywood studios filmed Westerns, which, oh my God, I had not known. How and why did Jenkins see this, you know, intersection as being crucial to the work he has made? 
Right. And I think so much of his personal life really influences his work. And I think the city does as well. You know, he was born and raised in Los Angeles and he's lived here for the majority of his life. And so I think we can't help but sort of think through the history of Los Angeles and think about this term, multiculturalism. You know, that term I think is really contentious in a lot of circles. I think it has been instrumentalized by certain groups and civil agencies, but Ultimately, Ulysses continues to return back to this term in that when we think about the late 70s and the early 80s, so many artists of color in this city were not being supported by galleries and were not being supported by museums and art institutions. And so, so much of that was sort of making their own spaces, using their studios to support each other, thinking about these conceptual incubators. And that is really sort of where you see these cross-cultural exchanges within uh, this sort of burgeoning art community happen. And Ulysses is very much a staple of that. He starts Other Vision Studios, which is his own studio space, but is also this incubator space for so many of his friends. And so many beautiful works come out of that, both his and also friends of his, you know, including May's son, Rudy Perez, and Marin Hassinger, Sangin and Goody, so many others. We're going to come back to other visions in, in, in a moment. You mentioned performing and making work under freeways. And of course, Sangin and Goody did that. David Hammonds did that. I think Marin Hassinger did too, if memory serves. So for people who are not familiar with Los Angeles, is that space kind of where Culver City and Crenshaw kind of overlap a particularly, was it a particularly diverse place when when Jenkins was growing up in the late 60s, mid to late 60s and 70s? It was starting to become that. So Ulysses went to Hamilton High School, which was integrated at the time, even though LAUSD wouldn't officially be integrated until 1976. But it is wild when you think about just how recent all of this history is, but also about the fact that he wrote a memoir in the early 90s called you know, A Doggerel Life, which we actually are republishing for the exhibition. And he talks a lot about his family being one of three Black families in his neighborhood that at the time was predominantly white. And so his formative years are very much impacted by these early inroads into integration in the city. Jenkins really kind of starts out as as somebody engaged with and working on murals. So how does he come to be engaged with murals really across Los Angeles in, in the 1970s? I think Ulysses's mural history is something that isn't really explored until now, which is really exciting that I think we've been able to go through that with him. And so... Ulysses, while he was living in L.A., once he graduated from high school, he actually went down south and went to Southern University, which is a historically black college in Louisiana. And there he studied painting and drawing. So he graduates in 69. 
he comes back to LA and he needs a job and he lands a gig at the Los Angeles probation department in central juvenile hall. And there he's actually working as an artist. So he is creating these like large scale painted backdrops for various plays and programs that they're putting on. And so that's where he sort of initially gets inspired to paint at a large scale. He also cites the various murals that we're seeing throughout East LA at the time. And he's also thinking about OSCO and their sort of anti-mural movement. But it isn't until he actually moves to Venice where he discovers several sort of mural groups, that's where he starts to make his his first murals. And so his mural history is actually really interesting because it leads him to create one of the murals that is actually still standing and looking over the 110 freeway, which is called Transportation Brings Art to the People. And he made this mural in 1974. There's a great picture of it under construction, if you will, in in the catalog, where the the lower third of it is gridded, and there's a man on a ladder, which if you're me, that makes you nervous because you're terrified of heights. But yeah, it's a great picture. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he creates this mural in 1974. And he, it's essentially, it's for the DMV at the time he gets commissioned by the DMV. And it's this wonderful mural that is considering all of the people, specifically the people of color who made transportation possible in California. I mean, the mural includes everything from the PCH to stagecoaches. (laughs) Right, exactly. So it's it's a little bit of everything. But it's really thinking about the people of color that made the transcontinental railroad possible, which was the first railroad that essentially went east to west in this country. And so this mural, I think, is really amazing because it's still visible on the facade of that DMV building on the freeway. And it's actually still like pretty intact. So he does that mural at the time. He also works on Judy Baca's The Great Wall, which is a sprawling mural in the Tahunga Wash, which was done in 1976. And his specific portion of that mural is called 1848 Band-Aid. And it sort of includes all of these various historical figures in California, Biddy Mason, who was, you know, a black woman who essentially freed herself from slavery and, you know, went on become to become a real estate mogul. She also started the first AME church in Los Angeles and other sort of fictional figures such as Joaquin Murrieta, who was sort of known to be this Robin Hood during the gold rush era. And so, so much of the depictions in this mural are sort of based on this revisionist history of California and really, again, centering multiculturalism and thinking about these various people of color who have made this city and this state possible. Of course, those of us who grew up in San Francisco and thus, of course, have a rivalry with L.A. in our blood, um, like to note that Mary Ellen Pleasant was followed by by Biddy Mason. (laughs) 
in these two early Ulysses Jenkins projects and collaborations, we have two things that really remain in the work thereafter. Self-defined multiculturalism, an eager willingness, if not centering of collaboration with others. And that, that stays in through his career, right? Absolutely. I mean, Ulysses is really sort of the glue, in my opinion, of a certain moment in the LA arts community, because, you know, not only is he collaborating with various artists, but he's also very much the sort of documentarian of so many artists at the time. His work, King David, which is a really beautiful, short, black and white documentary is really documenting David Hammond's last day in Los Angeles before he moves to New York. There's another really great documentary called Momentous Occasions, Charles White, which documents his then professor, Charles White, and a major show that he has at Barnstall Art Park. And so I think it's been really interesting to consider how people have had difficulty placing Ulysses as an artist in that he, you know, really used, utilized video to the fullest. He wasn't just necessarily making video art, but he was thinking about documentary. He has a stint as a public access programmer. And so he's really an artist that's charting his own path. We should probably talk a little bit about when he becomes interested in performance and video. It comes along after he's started working on murals uh, at the end of the 1970s, around 1980 or so. And it's an amazing moment for video and most amazing, especially in Los Angeles, where artists were embracing the new medium with a particular focus and a special intensity. And they're doing that in part because institutions such as the Long, Long Beach Museum we're making equipment that was typically expensive to use or to rent time on available to them. So what do we know about why video interests him and what he thinks about doing it, which is to say not just documentary, but he starts making what we now readily recognize as video art. It is a really fascinating moment in LA's history, LA art's history. So after his sort of stint with muralism, he actually is thinking about grad school. And so he applies to UCLA, he gets rejected, and the artist Gary Lloyd actually sort of tells him he should apply to Otis and that Charles White is there and Betty Sarr is there. And so he applies to Otis, he gets in. And he goes into the now defunct intermediate department, which is focused on video and performance. And what's really fascinating about this department at the time is you have people such as Chris Burden, Carl Chang, Eileen Segalov, Jean Youngblood, and they are all sort of inspiring this new generation of artists and really welcoming them into video and performance at the time. And so this really sort of sets this new trajectory for his practice. And, you know, I think beyond that, I think Ulysses's fascination with video really just stems from growing up in L.A. I mean, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he grew up next to these major studios. He grew up next to the Desilu studio. And so, you know, I think about video 
in particular and it's sort of influenced this the cinematic influence of the city and how that comes into play and so when some of these early themes in his work start to get teased out uh, you see that there's a very strong focus on how the media portrays and depicts black men, the sort of caricatures and stereotypes that we are constantly fed. And so, so much of him using video as a format, I think, is a sort of way to refuse or circumvent film and its history of these sort of depictions. And so it's this really interesting juxtaposition that's happening. The work to which I think you're referring is 1978's Massive Images. On the show page at manpodcast.com, we will include Vimeos of, of as many of these works as possible. But for the purposes of the here and the present, what do we see when we, when we look at Massive Images? Right. So Massive Images is his first performance video work. And it's really fascinating because it's actually an assignment that comes out of a class that he's taking at Santa Monica City College. So he does take some Santa Monica City College courses before he enters into Otis. And during that time, he's taking a class on the history of African-American cinema. And so he's very much getting this sort of download of all of these early race films, you know, such as D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation or, you know, these various films in which you're, you're seeing these depictions of people in blackface. And so Massive Images is really sort of calling that history to attention. And so what you see is Ulysses in a wheelchair with the sort of see-through mask, and he has this this sort of massive hammer, and he's sitting next to a pile of TVs, of, of monitors. And he starts it off by saying, you're a Massive Images you know, something, I can't remember all of it, but he's essentially talking about this, what he refers to as the image problem in the way in which cinema and media has continued to depict Black people, but specifically Black men. And so as he is having this confrontation, this sort of standoff with these stack of monitors, we're also confronted with this montage of these, this history of these various films. You know, as I mentioned before, Birth of a Nation, The Jazz Singer, and we're, we're sort of seeing this history play out. And so at the very end of the film, you see him attempting to essentially break and rupture the monitors with his hammer, but he can't bring himself to do that. And then instead he turns to the camera. And so it's this really interesting performance of him confronting this image problem, him essentially wanting to, to destroy this history and this legacy of stereotyping, 
but he sort of ultimately realizes that he doesn't have the power to do that. But he looks at you, the viewer, and the camera in sort of questioning, well, what will you do about it? What can a collective effort do to fix this issue? And so it's a really powerful first performance video piece that he does that I think really sets the tone for the works he does moving forward. You mentioned other visions a few moments ago. It was a, I don't know, not quite a collective. I'm not quite sure what the word would be, but it's sort of a collective that Jenkins formed partly with grant money he received from the National Endowment for the Arts. And among the collaborations in which Jenkins participated in in these years was May Sun's 1986, The Great Wall or How Red Is My China? Tell us a little bit about that work. And is it a good example of how Jenkins extended his interest in both collaboration and multiculturalism in new directions? Absolutely. So, you know, shortly after he graduates from Otis, he receives this NEA grant and he actually receives it from a work that he submits to Zone Transfer, which is his first performance turned video work that he did sort of infamously with the three other black students at Otis, which were Ronnie Nichols, Greg Pitts and Carrie James Marshall. And so he receives this grant money, He's he graduated, and he starts Other Vision Studio, which to him is his own sort of working studio, but also is, is a conceptual incubator for so many other artists, specifically artists of color in LA who just need a space, you know, need space to show their work, need space to sort of collaborate and collectively work together. And what's really interesting about other visions as a concept or an entity is over the course of his life, it sort of takes on these different forms. At a certain point, there's other visions band, which is his band when he starts to become, you know, starts to really get into music and considers himself to be a musician. But essentially, other visions is sort of the container of Ulysses's practice. So at this time, when Other Vision Studio is sort of coming to fore, you have May Sun, who also went to Otis, working in Other Visions. You also have artists like Marin Hassinger and Senga Nguri coming in, who at the time were part of the collective Studio Z, which Ulysses is sort of in and out of. And you also have Rudy Perez, who is is known to be this sort of innovative postmodern dancer who's holding workshops at the studio. So you have all this wonderful energy and activity that's coming out of this space. And one of the really great pieces that comes out of it is The Great Wall or How Red Is My China by May Sun in 1986. So Mason first performs this piece at Lace, which, you know, I think has its own sort of incredible LA history. Lace being Los Angeles contemporary exhibitions in Hollywood. Yes, exactly. And it's more of a theatrical piece in which May Sun is thinking about her generation of Chinese American people and thinking about their reflections on uh, the Chinese Communist Party 
and how that has impacted their lives, the this sort of intergenerational trauma and history that comes from it. And May actually, when May Sun went to China, she learned that her two aunts were a part of the party. And so it's also very much considering her personal family legacy around the Chinese Communist Party. And so what's really fascinating about all of this is Ulysses plays Paul Robeson in this piece. And you kind of wonder, what does Paul Robeson have to do with the Chinese Communist Party? But what's fascinating about this is Paul Robeson was actually a really great friend of Mao Zedong. And he famously sang Chi La in Mandarin, which uh, translates to the March of the Volunteers. And that song eventually became the the national anthem for the Chinese Communist Party. And so what I love about this moment is you have not only these multicultural connections that are happening in that present time in which May is performing this, but, you know, they're also actively considering this lineage of connections through both personal and major national histories. As, as Jenkins's career advances, he becomes more and more interested in indigenous histories and movements, especially in, in California. What prompts that interest and how does he work it into his work? Right. And I really love this. I mean, I, or I think that this is a really important part of Ulysses's practice that doesn't always get teased out is, again, I think as someone who grows up in Los Angeles, is growing up in the state of California, there is a very strong indigenous presence and history surrounding him. And so he taps into that in the early 80s, starting with one of his first pieces around that Columbus Day, a dog roll. So this piece, Columbus Day, a dog roll, he basically creates this this mound of soil in the middle of the gallery. And unbeknownst to the, the public that's there, there's a rotting carcass of a dead squirrel in the middle of this soil. But it's not visible to the public because he's put this, this sort of vintage lawnmower on top of it. And so this lawnmower is something that you see show up in later works. And for him, the lawnmower was really a sort of representation of Western imperialism in that it mows down everything in its sight. It's sort of relentless in that way. And this carcass is really representing, I think, not only the lives, the sort of genocide and enslavement of Native people, but also all people who have been affected by Western imperialism. And so, you know, I think his interest in indigenous people's struggle is very much tied to just like a larger struggle and thinking about how this imperialism plays out over time. So after that, you know, he goes on to do several works. He does a piece called Being Witness Haida, which is a documentary that actually documents Reg Davidson and Jim Hart, who are two prominent 
native carvers from Haida Gwaii off the coast of British Columbia. And it's this really wonderful documentary that just sort of outlines both of them. They're both, uh, one is building a canoe and the other is building this totem pole. And so it documents the process the ritual and the ceremony that goes around once they're created and, you know, centers obviously this cultural legacy of working in this way. He moves to the Bay Area in the early 90s and he talked to me about attending the annual Thanksgiving Day or the Indigenous People Sunrise Ceremony that is held on Alcatraz to commemorate the 1969 protests in which members from the Red Power Movement occupied the island. And that moment being extremely impactful for him, again, in sort of thinking through indigenous struggles. And so he goes on to do several works in the Bay Area, Bay Window, which is a really great work that utilizes the video phone that he does at SF MoMA. And it's this really wonderful day-long event in which he is using the video phone to connect with various people up and down the West Coast, specifically Indigenous people, to think through environmental racism, environmental justice, and this idea of sustainability. And so I think for him, he's really considering these struggles as part of a larger struggle. And he's thinking about solidarity and he's thinking about the power of cross-cultural exchange. As part of this project, how have you and your co-curator, Meg Only, been working to make sure kind of a full range of Jenkins's practice is more accessible and, and visible than it had been? You mentioned in addition to the exhibition catalog, which of course, of course exists, you've expanded this project to include a publishing project. Right. I mean, I think Meg and I, as I mentioned, started this project three years ago. And what was really fascinating about it was just sort of thinking about our knowledge of his work when we started versus now. And it's just fascinating because, you know, I think Ulysses is really known for a select few video works that he made in the 70s, and that has always sort of been what has circulated. But the moment that we stepped into his studio, we realized that he has kept everything for the past 50 years. And stepping into that studio really opened this incredible multivalent practice of his that I think really coincides with a history and an origin story of video as a format. And what you notice about Ulysses is he is a true artist in that so much of his work is just this ongoing experimentation of the limitations and the boundaries and the capacities of video, of collaboration, of performance. And he's always sort of trying out these new things. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, what you learn through this process is he's so much more than a video artist. He is, you know, as I mentioned, a documentarian. He's doing public access programming. You know, we could even argue that he starts making music videos. When you think of his piece, Peace in Anwar Sadat, which was made in response to the assassination of Anwar Sadat, who was the first Egyptian president, you see him edging more into music and, and taking ownership of this identity of a musician. 
And so he's someone who is just truly DIY in a sense, truly experimental, always sort of innovating. And it's just really admirable. And so I think for Meg and I, it was really important to encapsulate not only 50 years of work, but a certain sensibility and aesthetic that is truly Ulysses, you know, that is gritty, that is pixelated, that is video in its earliest form, and that is constantly still evolving. And so we're hoping that through the catalog, which not only has, you know, I think incredible contributors that are bringing in new scholarship to his work, but also include a really sweet reflection section where people like David Hammonds and Sangha Nanguti and, you know, even Dr. Kelly Jones are talking about the impact and the influence of his work. But then we also have this incredible roundtable with a group of film scholars that are thinking about how Ulysses's video work ties into a larger cinematic history. And obviously, as I mentioned before, we're also republishing his memoir that he wrote in the 90s that has really been an incredible resource for Meg and I in terms of charting out a chronology and a historical timeline of his work. So, you know, we really felt that these publications were really important. And we're also hoping that the memoir can sort of continue to center an artist's voice because Ulysses's voice is so unique. And one of the major things that we found in his studio was that he wrote a treatment for every single work, every single video work that he did. And the treatments are often poetic you know, often these sort of manifestos and these mission statements. And we realize how incredibly important his writing practice is in all of this. And so, you know, we're hoping to tease some of that out with these publications. And, you know, the goal of this show has always been to think about his voice alongside ours. How can the sort of scholarship and the artist's voice come together in this way? As I understand it, the books will be available in November and we'll have links to how you can get them on Manpod, on the show page on manpodcast.com. Aaron Cristobal, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.